You have tuned into WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Boomi Akinisotu, and this is What in the World. Thank you for joining us. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a faithful listener and you've been around a little bit, thank you for coming back to me. I make foreign policy and international affairs understandable and try to unpack it so that your head doesn't spin. And I also, I'm smart, but then I have smarter people come in and try to explain all of this stuff. So some of you have hopefully heard that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Yay, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I've invited a cyber hero. I've called you the cyber hero. Oh. I have nicknames for everybody who comes on the I love it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's all you need you. to say is cyber hero. Uh, she's a, I'm going to get you a cape and a symbol. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> Best day ever. Our cyber hero, another woman in DC who works really hard and I don't know when she sleeps because she has 80,000 different things that she's doing. And when I read her bio, it's not even like a tenth of what's on her to-do list, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm glad she's here Camille Stewart has joined us to explain cybersecurity and national security and foreign policy. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Camille. Thank you so much for being here with us. So let's talk about a little bit about who you are, what you're about. So Camille Stewart is a fellow at New America's Cybersecurity Initiative. She is a manager at one of the big four consulting firms and works for the Cyber Risk Service Practice. And her focus is on cyber, privacy, and identifying emerging technologies to bring to new markets. She, in particular, is really well-versed in cross-cutting issues related to cyber, national security, and foreign policy. If all of that just has you like, what? She's going to explain what all those terms mean and, frankly, why you should care because there's a lot going on in the news that uh, impacts you. There's that one thing called the elections, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. (laughs) So... Uh, So Camille has also worked in the Obama administration at the Department of Homeland Security, also focusing on high profile domestic and international cyber issues. I think she might be a spy, but that's just (laughs) we'll leave that out out. on the radio. And what I appreciate about Camille is um, she has connections to an organization that's near and dear to my heart, which is the National Urban League. Uh, She received uh, the 2018 National Urban League Cyber Connoisseur Honoree. Yeah, such an honor. (laughs) (laughs) And she has her own podcast too i do yay and her podcast is called hustle over entitlement it tells the stories of trailblazers and risk takers across various sectors she's going to talk about that podcast later on it's so great to have you here finally to talk about this stuff and about you thank you i'm so excited to be here um cybersecurity awareness month is obviously near and dear to my heart because you know part of the reason i got into this is because we are all so connected. Mm -hmm. And so cybersecurity is something we should all be aware of as we navigate in our daily lives. And each of us as individuals is core to that. So I'm glad to be here to talk about it. I might have to bring you everywhere to like introduce me between (laughs) calling me a cyber hero and like the entire bio. Yes. We're just going to get you, like I said, a cape and a symbol to put on your shirts. And that's all you need when you walk around DC. (laughs) Uh, So Camille is interesting, um, as I said, and I know her a little bit personally as well. But Camille, tell us how did you get into the space? Like, why? Because you could be doing a whole lot with your, your just intelligent self. You could be doing anything. Else. I actually really couldn't. Let me tell you why. So 
<laughs> Growing up, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I was the kid who would hand my parents a contract after they made me a promise, make them sign and have witnesses. So first, I always knew I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> you were negotiating and with the doctors when you came out the womb. Let me tell you from the beginning. And then uh, my dad's a computer scientist. So ah. technology has always been around. We had, you know, the old school DOS machine and right next to our Windows machine. Like I have seen it. The young all. kids don't know what a DOS they machine don't know. is. They don't know. I need y'all to Google. They don't it. know the back the, the black screen yes. with, the, with the green text with the and the little Yes. I need y'all to Google it. <laughs> so yeah, so I have had computers and technology in my life from the very beginning. And so I struggled to find a way to balance the two because I couldn't let go of my dream of being a lawyer, but I also like not only had an interest in but an aptitude in technology. Mm. And uh, quickly figured out that that cyber was the best way to do that. Nice. And then it had that human connection that was really important to me, right? Like it is such a part of our lives and such a pervasive force in everything we do on a given day that we need to be aware of how it's moving and and shaping in our society. Yeah. And so so the intersection of foreign policy and cyber. So how did you have that dimension? How did that how did that come into play? Well, so I am the child of immigrants. So international I can't see my dance. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Jamaica stand up. (laughs) No, we can't (laughs) there's always been an international component to everything that I do. And so it's funny because I often fail to mention it because I all, I think it's inherent in everything, right? There are international dimensions to all things. Mm-hmm. And in such a global society, if you ignore it, you're ignoring a big piece of the puzzle. So mm-hmm. that quickly became part of my work when I was on the Hill, when I was, you know, working at the cybersecurity company and then... <laughs> Predominantly so when I was in the administration managing a lot of our international portfolios. So Israel, Five Eyes, and a number of other countries that have um, strong cybersecurity ties to the Department of Homeland Security. And so you're not one of those people like on our uh, previous shows, guests have been like, I don't know how to, like my parents don't know what I do. Your parents get what you do or your dad at least gets what you do. So yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, my daughter's a spy. Well, oh my gosh, it's so funny because I... Uh, I said something to my dad about somebody in the CIA and he was like, oh, I didn't know that's what you did. And I was like, dad, you know what I do. But I think that there's there is a little mystery and intrigue in cybersecurity that's different from like working in a very technical space because he's a very technical Mm. person. And so working on the policy aspect and with the the travel that goes along with it, I think there's always like a thing in the back of their mind where they're like, I think I'm missing a piece of this. But they know what I I do, but they they think they're not. They think they're missing something. She's but like not. she ain't in the house building computers, so. <laughs> right? Exactly. So I really don't get it. But yay! <laughs> well, I share your passion. Uh, I don't know if you know this. So my first, so I was also a computer geek, and when I was in high school, I'm a little a tad older than you, just a tad. just a tad. But when I was in high school, I was coding in a language called Pascal. Oh, I know it. Yes, yeah. And I thought I was so cool. <laughs> you were. I was so cool that in I went to college opinion. and got a degree in it. Did you? I did. My compute, my undergrad is in computer information systems. Hold on. Don't let me recruit you now. Listen, I need them dollars. But <laughs> <laughs> so go right ahead. So after college, my very first job 
was as an IT auditor for a huge bank on the East Coast. Oh, that's why you got turned off. <laughs> IT auditing is not sexy. I mean, for those who do it out there, so proud of you. Thank you for doing the good work. But in my opinion, <laughs> IT audits is a rough slog, man. I hope all of you, um, if you have young ones who are in the STEM field or interested in even like being a lawyer, there's so many ways you can combine these fields. And that's what I like about your background is you have your your personal story with your immigrant family, you have your interest in law, and then you have your interest in tech. And yeah. you've been able to combine that beautifully. And so please, please encourage other young people in your lives to think creatively about their careers. And look at her. She ended up working for President Barack Obama, right. which is yes. not such a bad little thing. You, exactly. And I <laughs> echo that. You can always cultivate a career yeah. which encompasses all of your interests and your career is not limited to your nine to five. There are other activities that Mm -hmm. we both engage Mm -hmm. in outside of our nine to fives. Yes. Hello podcast. Yeah. That, you know, draw on those other interests. at New America. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Let's dive in. Cybersecurity 101, Camille. So I was on your Twitter account and one of your tips. So Camille has this great campaign where every day she puts out tweets regarding tips on how to keep your information safe. And one of the quotes that I really liked was be intentional with when and how you engage technology. Every day you make trade-offs between convenience and security slash privacy. Your data is a commodity. And the more connected you are, the more vulnerable you are to attack, which can lead to things like identity theft. Girl, I have had my identity stolen. Haven't we all? It's 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 not if, but when now. Ooh, oh, when? Oh, we're doing that mm-hmm, now? Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Let's, <laughs> let's, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with the beginning for people who may not know. Let's just make sure we level set. What do we mean by cybersecurity and When, in your opinion, did this become such a problem for governments uh, to pay attention to? And now it's no longer, as you say, if, but when. So I like to start with talking about cyber as a whole, right? And so cyber is all these connected technologies and systems and the way that we are connected to each other, right? And part of that is cybersecurity. So that's securing those systems, making sure that they are able to do what they're supposed to do and connect and send data in the ways that they're supposed to and making sure it protects your data in the way that it's intended. But then there's also operationalizing cyber, which a lot of us think about and do every day, right? Like it is using cyber for our benefit. So that's using it to connect you and I via a computer. it is using it to log into work. Like it is a helpful thing. And so supposed to be. Exactly. <laughs> but there are two sides to every coin. And so I like to to draw that out because I want people to remember that the thing that has given you so many positives can also, you know, have a negative side if you are not watchful and protecting your information. As for the government being involved in this space, they've been involved in it way before it had a name, mm-hmm. right? So as these connected systems sprouted up, the government was thinking about or all governments were thinking about ways to protect the data that they held. This isn't new. This isn't, you know, an area that is like nascent for the government, but they are coming together 
together in ways around these issues because of the increasing connected nature of things. And now that it's global, the threats are bigger and people are leveraging it in new and different ways. So it's not new, but it has transformed and elevated in the public consciousness such that everyone is kind of thinking about these issues in different ways. So if I understand correctly, you know, it's not it's actually beyond. So you you're on the policy side. Yes. It's beyond just like the technical aspect of the specs in a phone or the specs in your laptop and how secure those are. It's so cyber, as I understand it, is also the mechanisms, the laws, the agreements, the rules of the road, if you will, for ensuring that these technical devices are being used for good and not for yeah, things. so the policies underpin that ability to use it in both ways okay. and pr- and protect yourselves. But that but cyber is that connectedness of technology, of technology. inherently. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Okay, so I want to try to understand the process of something uh, and this goes back to my audit days. There's a, there's a there are phrases like security and privacy and most of us are familiar with the process of like buying a phone for example. Uh, and some people have a pin of some sort some pin password whatever protecting their information maybe you don't want your girlfriend to find out then pictures (laughs) yes sir (laughs) or you don't want your kid you know accessing certain apps so you have pins set up you know on your phone or on certain apps or whatever it is can you just talk us through the technical process right so how are pins stored who can see that pin and can a company give my pin information to the government if the government asks for it So, I mean, I think what you're getting at is kind of encryption and how you kind of lock down your phone. So encryption is the process of converting information or data into a code to prevent unauthorized access. So think about it like if I had a Rubik's Cube and I scrambled it up before I sent it to you and the moment you received it, as long as you showed this thing, the encryption key, Mm. that only you and I know, hopefully, (laughs) it automatically unscrambled and you could read whatever message was written on the Rubik's Cube. So that's encryption. And when you have your iPhone and you input a pin. Or Samsung. Or Samsung. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> when you have your phone, it used, nowadays, thankfully, they come encrypted. So even if you don't put a passcode in there when it's locked, but that means that the moment somebody opens it, it it unencrypts and you can still see anything. And so that's not really protecting you. So you add a passcode to further encrypt it. And so it'll combine whatever was the original key for Mm -hmm. the encryption with your passcode to create something completely unique that people are less likely to be able to hack into or find. Right. Okay. And we'll have a harder time breaking. Okay. And so that's kind of how that protects you and We often think about particularly encryption around security versus privacy, how you were kind of mentioning. But it's really that debate that's going on in society and in government is really about access. We're talking about law enforcement wanting to access your information so that they can solve a crime. They can Mm -hmm. get information to help facilitate solving a crime. Or prevent a crime, maybe. Or prevent a crime, Mm -hmm. right. So that they can do their jobs. And on the other side of that is you know, technical true encryption that's hard to break and, you know, you don't share the key with anyone and you want to protect that or privacy on the other end, both have the same outcome, but for different reasons where you want to protect your information and you have the right to keep that, you know, to yourself and private or between you and whoever you share it with. And so the, the, the discussion that's happening in the ecosystem is about 
access to that information and how much we should allow there to be access, how much companies should facilitate access, Mm. how much the government should compel people to allow that access. And then from the security privacy convenience standpoint, those are kind of the trade-offs you make every day with how you engage. Right. So if you choose not to develop a passcode for your phone, you are deciding that it is super convenient for you to just pick your phone up and jump right in and do what you have to do. But you are now sacrificing your security and your privacy because now everybody can do that same thing. So every time you make these Mm trade-offs, you are giving something away and your data has become a commodity, right? Mm -hmm. You get so many free things because you are giving them your data. And so you should be judicious about that. That's back to that be intentional comment, right? Like I want to empower people to understand that at a base level, you do have, well, we still do, some control over how your data is used, moved, managed, all of that. And you should take authority in that just like you do with your physical safety or anything else. Right. So so this reminds me of... um you know, when you whenever you sign up for anything online, that small print, yes. and you got to scroll to the bottom. I think like 99.99% of the people don't read it, don't read it. And I'm one of them. And so you're just like, agree, agree, agree. <laughs> you have no idea what you signed up for. But so here's what's even worse than that, because you're right. So many people do. Even lawyers do it. I try to read everything. You try to skim. You do, but it's hard. Your eyes. But here's what's worse. So you've signed up for whatever service, whatever social media service. You click, click, click through. But then somebody else, some researcher, some nerd like me, figures out that what you gave permission to were a series of things, some of which you're actually not okay with. And I write an article about it and I put it out in the world. You either see that article and take no action or you're not looking for articles like that and you take no action. action, And that's that's really my concern. I mean, I don't want you to do it in the first place if you haven't looked at what the features are and understand how to turn things off and on and control your data. But when people take so much effort to kind of put the information out there for you, how you can further protect yourself and we're ignoring that as well. That worries me because we are now not informed stewards of our own data Mm -hmm. and those have broader implications. Right. So cybersecurity is one of those issues where we all play a very big part. Almost every major hack, attack, breach, whatever started from some kind of human element. Mm. Phishing attempts which are those social engineering attacks where somebody pretends to know you or pretends to be from an organization that you're familiar with. Exactly. Or a Wells Fargo email that you're like, oh, yeah, I do have a bank account there. Let me click. And randomly you got it at your work email, but you only have it associated with your personal and you click it anyway. Right. And then now they've got access to your work servers. Now they've got and if you work at the government, those are government servers. Right. Like we all play such a big part in our personal cybersecurity, but also in the cybersecurity of bigger organizations and the nation as a whole. And I think that's what people fail to realize by not being stewards of their information. Right. And that's why we have you on the show. And that's why we have things like cybersecurity awareness. Yes. So that we can take a look. As soon as we're done with the show, I'm about to change all of my paths. (laughs) (laughs) Please change them routinely and make them complex. So part of understanding, I think, cybersecurity policy and really any policy, any type of policy is just knowing the stakeholders 
stakeholders in that system and what their different roles are. And now we saw not too long ago, I don't want to jump ahead, but just earlier, towards, well, actually towards the end of the summer, there was like the Elections um, Act and how we protect our upcoming midterm elections. There, yeah. there are all these legislation. And to me, you feel, I, I think as a consumer, I'm like, this should be easy, right? Like we should just, the government should just, agree that we need to protect consumers but it's a lot more complicated and it's complicated because of who's at the table so can you just talk about sort of the main groups organizations companies whoever that have a stake in cybersecurity, and just touch on like some of the dynamic that causes some of the tension such that certain legislation maybe doesn't pass or to your point you know certain things happen with companies like they get breached like what what who is at stake here or who are the big voices in this debate yeah so the the hard part about that is really everyone's kind of involved and so it gets kind of convoluted but based on the topic you can kind of narrow that down so government is inherently involved because they determine what we can and can't do in the space Mm -hmm. right what's permissible what's not and how we curtail behavior and that's from Congress down to the FBI to DHS. Everybody. And you'll see it in different ways. So back to our encryption context, law enforcement can, you know, compel you to provide your fingerprint for your passcode um, to your phone or your face ID, but they can't compel you to provide the actual passcode without a warrant. Who decided that? the judiciary, right? And Congress has not legislated anything different, so that's what they operate on. So every part of government has a role in in this debate. And then also, industry has a big role. Because there's not a lot of law and policy around cyber issues, it has it began as a free for all, there's becoming more. But even still, they're kind of setting pace with innovation and then we're playing catch up on how we then, you know, provide some order and and regulation within that framework in that context because we are also concerned about curtailing innovation. We don't want that to be the outcome of any kind of rulemaking that happens. And because of that, arguably rightfully so, you have to be fairly reactionary or fairly broad when you prescribe rules and regulations. It's got to be frameworks so that you can kind of assess what's happening. And you don't want to stifle the growth of companies who have fantastic ideas exactly because you never know where that could take society right right? right. if the crypto wars which was that first big debate about encryption decades ago had limited that we wouldn't be in the same places we are now with our twitter and facebook and and all kinds of things you don't know what it would have curtailed right so governments industry uh civil society so ngos and things like that they are the ones that get to take the time and do big thinking around these issues and inject that into the discourse, right? They're also the people who tend to be advocates for a given perspective. So privacy advocates who are like, wait a minute, we need to protect people's ability to keep some things to themselves, which is important. And then you've got technologists who are like, and not technologists as in the technology companies, but I'm talking about true practitioners who are like, encryption's math. That's important. Like so, folks like we your dad. To, who right, like, exactly. <laughs> we need to lock this stuff down. And inherently, we shouldn't limit how that grows and evolves. And so there are a lot of different voices in the debate. But the problem is all of that should be dictated by society, right? Like in most areas of 
law and policy, there are some fundamental societal understandings that kind of help evolve the discourse about these issues. So with human rights, we have all basically decided it's not right to kill people. It's not right to like harm people in these different ways. And so we operate off of those Mm -hmm. general assumptions. Yes, we might have differences on who's doing it and how they're doing it Mm -hmm. exactly. And, you know, if we have some standing in certain jurisdictions to do anything about it. But there are some general fundamental understandings about human rights. Because people are not as savvy about technical issues as a whole, we have not cried out for those things yet. We have not as a society said... This or approximately this is the balance that I can stand on security, privacy, access and all of these things that we've been discussing. Right. And so there's a key player in this dynamic that has not yet you know, voiced its understanding right. and desires in the issue. And so as that understanding evolves, so will this issue. Ah, I see. And this, as you were speaking, I was reminded of things like, uh, it, it's not a law, or I, I guess it's not like uh, when you hear about people's Facebook photos being stolen and like propped up onto different fake pages or fake pages. I mean, it's not entirely illegal, right? but it is unethical. It's just kind of jacked up. Right. It sucks. <laughs> and it's a violation of the terms of service. So that's usually yeah, how yeah, you yeah. get it yeah, taken yeah, yeah, down. I see. I see. But, but to your point, there's no like law there's no that law. says you can't steal right. somebody's picture and do X, Y, Z. Right, right, right. So people have had to find other ways, other ways. Yeah. to police the space. Then, but those are the, the small, discrete areas where people have cried out and then there's been a change, right? So a lot of the development of terms of service on these social media sites is because society was like, uh-uh. <laughs> No, that you person can't, can't steal my, my babies. Right, you can't steal my baby's picture and put it on your webpage. That's unacceptable. And they were like, "You right? Let me update these terms of service." <laughs> right, and right, so right. you know, you can kind of see it in in, yeah. in these micro ways that if it happened at a macro level, we'd be a lot better off if we had an umbrella understanding of where society's appetite was on these issues. Okay, so we have government, we have companies, we have the geeks of the world, like your father and his daughter. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the policy, the policy. We have all of these people in this mm-hmm. ecosystem. Let's take it a level up. We have the world. Yeah. We have other countries. And similar to sort of the domestic ecosystem, the international ecosystem has not yet caught up to this space. And here's a, <laughs> an interesting fact. Uh, so so like you mentioned, human rights, trade, um, we have all of these like rules of engagement between countries. Um, and so China oh, makes China. 75% <laughs> Makes 70. I feel like we pick on China a lot. I know. So China makes 75% of the world's phones and 90% of the world's computers, PCs to be specific, which is insane. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, one country owning more than 50% of the products, electronic products is, is, is a lot. Yeah. And, and so it tells you who we should be focusing on. But so what are the agreements on the international level to ensure that, you know, me as an American, the Chinese aren't using my information to 
spam me, fish me, I don't know, salm, I don't know, whatever. Whatever. Do. <laughs> so there are a lot, like, like we talked about, there aren't really very many rules of the road in cyber. We've got a lot of international treaties and agreements that help dictate other behaviors, but we don't have those in cyberspace. We try to apply some of them to cyberspace, and we do this with regular laws too, and I could go on a whole tangent about how, how and when we should do that, but we do that in cyber to an extent, right? But nobody has agreed read on anything. So even if we're applying these international norms that we already have on, you know, what rises to the level of armed conflict and things like that that would like get us into war for the US that's at one level, for China that's at another and for Russia that's another. And so the problem then becomes in other dynamics in the physical war space, we know the moment or approximately the moment at which something rises to the mm. level where we are at war. But we don't know that in cyber. And there has been a push for international cyber norms, which would set some rules of the road that say these things are off limits and we won't do these things. And we've entered into a few agreements. So there was a, a, a big fanfare around China agreeing to stop cyber espionage in commercial context during the Obama presidency. And but recently there were articles that maybe some of that has ticked up. And quite frankly, that is one mechanism of many to mm. do what they were trying to do, mm. which is build their economic and military stance and stature by siphoning off information from other groups. Mm. Right. So the problem on the international stage is we have not yet agreed to what those lines are and what those lanes are. So, you know, one of the things that to your election point that we did that um, as a as the U.S. to help make this a little bit clearer was we made our election infrastructure critical infrastructure so that we could say that like you have attacked something that is like core mm. to our ability to operate, core to national security. But even that, there's no, there's a norm proposed right. that would govern that. But that's not, that's still not clear. Right. We're just trying to make it a little bit clearer from our vantage right. point. Right. It's not, it reminds me of like, you know, when you think about arms control, when you think about trade, there yes. are all these international institutions that govern, you know, police, if yes. you will, all of these actions but yeah. there's not one for cybersecurity. No, and and there are many for discrete things. Right, so right. there's one that governs like internet governance, right. well actually a handful that govern internet governance, but one that manages like the domain names that you use mm. and those things. And so there's a, a multi-stakeholder model where countries come together and they make agreements about how that works. And so there are some discrete ways like that we niches. are co yes, where we're cooperating on a global scale on these issues, but in the, some of these big fundamental, particularly around cybersecurity, right, and securing our nation and the things that tie towards national security, we're still figuring it out. And because of the way technology has evolved in different societies, and then mm -hmm. some of the other things that are just inherent in those foreign policy dynamics, their internal dynamics, mm -hmm. Those views on cyber and cybersecurity have evolved differently. Mm -hmm. And so the lines are blurry. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about cybersecurity in our everyday lives. And we've done a little bit of it already, but it, it is, you know, Cybersecurity Month and you have every hashtag everyday cyber. Yes. Follow hashtag everyday cyber. Follow it to get all of your wonderful tips. 
and I picked out a few okay. on your on your page. I, the way I structured this was, you know, Camille is going to talk through the tips and some of the technologies associated with those tips and then some of the sort of like policy legislative-ish pieces that are related. And there's there's a, a whole bunch, you know, that yes. we could talk through. We could be here for another 25 years. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I picked out just some that I thought was just interesting. And, and the first I want to start with, which I, I didn't even know about and it scared the crap out of me, which was this idea of shadow contact information yeah. and digital keys. So what is shadow <laughs> contact information? So both of these two things have recently come up in the context of Facebook. So shadow contact information is the information that you are providing a company to either use multi-factor authentication, which I encourage you all to sign up for on every side. Multi-factor authentication. Yes. This is MFA. MFA. All right. Or sometimes it's called um, two-factor authentication, right? Because you'll use two things. And that means that you not only put your password in, but they also maybe send you a text message and you have to provide the code. But so that prevents if somebody finds out your password, they still have to have your phone. You know, so it it protects you more because you have to authenticate or prove yourself in multiple multiple ways. Got it. Okay. So when you do that, as we just discussed, one of the most common ways is to get a text message to your phone. This has happened. Yes. To get a text message to your phone, you have to give them your phone number and you got to have your phone near you right but you have to give them your phone number so that's part of the shadow contact information it's the contact information you don't provide facebook or a social media site on intentionally right or i mean you intentionally provided that but like it's not on your profile you didn't put it in when you signed up maybe you gave them your google number because you didn't want them to really be able to find you right like maybe you didn't put your cell phone number in there but you did for that mfa because you want to be able to get into your facebook account when you're ready to get into your facebook account or it's also you have my phone number in your phone and you decide to sync your contacts with facebook but i have not i have intentionally not done that because i don't want to i don't need Facebook to number phone number, blah, blah, blah. But because you have and you've freely given that information, which is yours, to Facebook, they can then correlate that data to me and now they've got my phone number. Oh, so if your phone number oh oh, wait a minute. So your phone number is in my phone. Yes. And if you sync your contacts to, to Facebook, I which is get intentional, those notifications and they do ask. Right, exactly. And so it's not I say no though. <laughs> I do too. And I appreciate that because you do have my phone number in your phone. But, but it's not so but it's not about malintent on the part of the social media right. site that's trying to get this information. It is that someone who has the authority to have the information has made a choice that you didn't make. And because of it, there is this information out there lurking about you that is easy to correlate to you because obviously you have my number in there labeled as my number and I have my name in Facebook labeled as my name. And so that information is easy to correlate. And so now they've got it in the background. And so whether it's through MFA or some other thing that you do yourself or because someone else has some information and has provided it in a way that you have chosen not to they are able to get this shadow contact information. And so there's not too, too much you can do about it, but be aware that it's out there. Okay. Um, I mean, this goes to some of the other information that's floating out about you um, on the internet, right? So like, I always tell people to be very careful with how they choose um, security password questions and things like that because there's so much available about right. you online. Like if you say that you, what is the famous is your mother's maiden name. Exactly. Everybody uses Everybody that for uses everything. That. And you could, if you talk about your mama, you post on her for her birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Ma- and Thank you. Yeah. Everybody knows your mama's maiden name. And when the Googler, her sister still got the name or her brother still got the name, even if you've never said it and all of these things. And so... 
that's probably not the security question you should use. Or if you do, you shouldn't use the, the correct the answer. Correct you answer, should right. hold whatever fake answer it is to yourself and then use it that way. But um, so it's similar to that. So that ch- con- shadow contact information phenomenon is something that's popping up. And I'm sure if people start to get like outraged about it, that might be another one of those things where society demands a change and then maybe it will change. Right. And so uh, fa- Facebook was in the news. They, they were breached in like 50 million yes. accounts or were hacked. So what is now the reactionary response to this breach? What's so, the government doing? So, I mean, they're getting called to the Hill for more testimony, <laughs> things like that. Watch out for C-SPAN um, now. Exactly. <laughs> Mark's about to be back on There's the more questions. He ain't left the Hill. He might as well camp out there. Most of them have. And so you mentioned the digital key question because that in that breach, they were saying, you don't need to change your password. They got the digital keys. They didn't get your passwords when they um, when they when this breach occurred. And so what that is, is back to our encryption conversation. And that's the key that would be used to um, unscramble mm. the information. Right. You did, they claim you did not have to change your password because you would still need to accompany that code with your password to, to truly unlock it. And so they've changed the code, the keys. It can still be coupled with your password. Always change your password. Look, anytime any of these things happen, just change it. Just change your password. It's not that hard. It'll add extra protection. Change your password. Okay. <laughs> I will. Thanks, Camille. Again, that's why she's our hero. <laughs> I'm just going to go back. We can just put that as my tagline. Cyberhero, change your password. Yes, on your website. <laughs> put it right there. I think it's like advocate, strategist, and then just put cyberhero. Change hero. your password. Yes, change your password. <laughs> Hashtag change your password. There it is. So so another concept, um, again, that I I did not know about, and it's related to your ideas about, you know, your tip about changing your password, yeah. which is this term is called uh, the internet of things. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately brought back to like multiple episodes of Black Mirror. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Um, And Back to the Future, which is my favorite movie of all time. But either way, so um, Consumer Report says that last year, in 2017, 12 out of 17 devices were considered IoT, which is the Internet of Things devices. Mm -hmm. What is that? So it's this phenomenon of like everything being connected, right? So you've got a watch now that is smart and connects to the internet or connects to your phone or connects to all these things. You've got a fridge now that's got Bluetooth and can tell you when you are out of eggs or you can like see in there and you've got, you know, a thermostat that you can control from your phone, which is super convenient. You've got all of these things that are now connected in ways that's internet of things. And so pervasively more things Things are becoming connected because it what makes it more convenient. But that also implies that there are some trade-offs that you're making. If you decide that you want a thermostat that you can control from your phone, there's nothing wrong with that decision. But that also means that now your thermostat can be hacked and that has broader implications. In 2016, many of you may have heard about the Dyn attack, which was a company that does a lot of the resolving of domain names. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of websites weren't populating. And the way that they did that was they leveraged the signal from these IoT devices to DDoS, Distributed Denial of Service, attack on, on Dyn. And so what that did was it flooded it with information. So then it was really slow to resolve these web pages. But they use these discrete signals from things that are all around your house or on your wrist or whatever to perpetrate the attack because nobody had changed any of the standard passwords. Mm-hmm. And so little things like that 
are things that we as individuals can, one, protect ourselves from, because now you're not able to access the sites you were trying to act. But just think about if that attack was directed elsewhere or at something else. Um, just imagine if your that person accesses your thermostat or the thermostats for an entire city, notches it up 10 degrees for everybody, and now your power plant is working at a level at which it's not used to on a hot right. summer day. You know, It's very interesting space because we all have a role in our national security by protecting ourselves. What about things like pacemakers, right? Like, I, I didn't even know that pacemakers were connected to the Internet, first of all. You know, thankfully, I don't need one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but I, I, I never even knew that. So these are devices that, like, older people use, um, people who are sick. I mean, they're not thinking about changing their password. But right? that's not on them. That's not on Your them. doctor should change the password of your okay. pacemaker. Okay, so, it's, right? so, like, it's, so in some cases, it's up to the institution. Yeah, exactly. You're not, I mean, hopefully you can't pull out your computer and reroute your pacemaker. I really <laughs> hope that people are not out here controlling these, like, sensitive medical devices themselves, right? But you're right. There is an opportunity for somebody who is savvy to attack a bunch of pacemakers. Yeah, vulnerable populations, yeah. But that is on hospitals. That is on the either the, the manufacturers to say, look, we won't push any updates to these devices, so they don't need to be connected. And, you know, we will decide that this has a shelf life of X because mm-hmm. we won't let it be connected. Mm-hmm. That's probably not realistic for things like pacemakers. Some other right. things maybe, but pacemakers probably need to be adjusted based on your heart rhythm and some other factors right. that are beyond me. But for things that do need to remain connected, they will need to figure out who the appropriate person is to make those changes. Those mm-hmm. changes still need to be made. It's yeah. just who's making them. Yeah, there's so many things like that where I think, you know, gosh, so so many people aren't in position yeah. to do all of these things. And right. so who then is the burden? Well, on? that's a big question in policy, too. Like yeah. for certain things, who does have the burden to make these changes or who can we give the burden to to right. make these changes? Right. And so that that's a big part of this discussion. Last piece here, which is related to the elections coming up. One of your tips talks about uh, social engineering attacks which in and of itself is clear about like what it what it is. But you say that an attacker uses human interaction, social skills uh, to obtain or compromise information about an organization, an individual or its computer systems. Be suspicious of unsolicited phone calls, visits or emails. So, again, big year for elections, not just in the United States, but all over the world. People, uh, countries have elections um, coming up. And we saw in 2016 the breach of the Democratic National Committee and what people have said that has created for democracy or what has done to democracy Mm -hmm. in in this country, uh, which is more of a reason just to pay attention, regardless of where you fall in terms of party lines. But so we had a recent stalling of the Election Security Act, which started off as bipartisan, um, but now has turned into a hot mess of partisanship. So could you just talk to us very quickly about what is the Election Security Act and why is it such an issue, a hard issue to resolve? So social engineering is kind of that stuff we were talking about with phishing attacks and all of that. You click the link in your email, you probably shouldn't do that if you don't know where it's from. And if you're even a little bit unsure, go to the source. So that's the social engineering piece. It's been used to, um, as I mentioned before, perpetrate a lot of bigger attacks. So send an email to an organization like the DNC, somebody clicks the link, they get access to the systems and things happen, right? The election security issue is very interesting because it is like, 
a microcosm of the bigger cybersecurity issues. Elections and democracy are getting attacked from different vectors and vantage points. So there's traditional stuff like using phishing attacks to mess with data. There's infrastructure issues where our voting machines are have not been updated and um, are connected in ways that are vulnerable and you know not secure. There are messaging and information offer- operations through social media that kind of you know manipulate the public's right. view it's on that how misinformation. Yes, stuff. that's that yeah. misinformation, disinformation stuff that is like. Let's change how people view elections. Let's make them unsure about whether or not they're secure on top of whether or not they are. Right. Because not much has changed with our election infrastructure. But I bet you feel a lot less secure now than you did, you know, eight years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And so some of that is these issues just coming to light because they've been there unfortunately, but some of it is because of this concerted effort to make you feel uncomfortable. Honestly, that's the worst attack on elections is people not being sure that even if we did get the most resilient systems and everything was on paper and all of these things, that you would still be uncomfortable and unsure. Because you don't trust the system. And that's terrifying. So I encourage people to like stay educated on this issue because hopefully there are changes being made that prevent the elections from being anything other than what they are, right? Like from a depiction of what the people elected, right? Mm -hmm. What the people selected. Right. So the Election Security Act and election security as a whole, I would say, is by and large still bipartisan, right? Elections are something that everybody wants to be secure. The legislation becomes iffy because different people would like to see the ability to further clamp down on elections happen later. They just want to see this this election play out before they before there, there are any changes made. And they feel like there have been enough changes and enough money with the the legislation uh, the appropriations bill earmarked money for states that they could use to right. build election right. security and things like that. Um, and so they feel like there are enough. Oh, so so if I understand, it's basically like this, let this be a test year. We gave the states some money, maybe not, but we gave some states some money to do what they need to do. It's right. states' rights to do what they need to do to protect themselves. Let's just get through November and see what's going to happen. Exactly. But what you're saying, and again, this is regardless of party and where you see this issue, it's like we've already, we already know that there is a capacity to infiltrate. Just like with other things, there should be some standards. Correct. And Basic- that's what that Election ah. Security Act was going to do, right? So it's not that states can't run this themselves. They're perfectly capable from an intellectual standpoint to figure out what the issues are and make choices about how to you know, moderate that. But if what we're seeing as a whole is that you know, election voting machines tend to have vulnerabilities and could be tampered with. And so the best way to reflect that this is a accurate representation of the selections made by the voter is to have a paper ballot or a verifiable paper ballot that people can see marked off the the same things that they selected and then submit. If that is the way that we ensure that people's votes are accurately reflected, then let's make that a standard, which is what the right. one of the things that the bill did. Right. Whereas, you know, some groups feel like, 
let's the states figure it out. There are a number it's of different ways that you can make. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, so there are some systems that don't have any paper record. There are some that you use a paper ballot and then you submit it. So there's both an electronic record and a paper record, which is good. There are some where you um, you make an electronic selection and it'll print on a piece of paper that should reflect what you. And so you just say, yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So there are there are different ways as long as it's. You know, something where there is either you making a selection on a piece of paper and then submitting. And even if it's tallied electronically, whatever, whatever, so that there's somebody could go back and audit it, which is another component of the bill, like routine audits, you know, select audits. Or even if you make the election electronically, it prints out a piece of paper that you as the voter then verify accurately reflects your selections and that's submitted. Something, though, where there it is memorialized in a way that won't be tampered with. And that is a big part of the provisions that came, and then some disincentives too, but the big part of the provisions that came into the Election Security Act. So it's still a bipartisan effort. I think it'll still go through maybe after this election. Maybe it'll be picked back up. But but there is a campaign by certain groups that like, let's see... Let's see what happens with the resources we've already provided. Right. We've made it critical infrastructure, so right. that provided resources. I feel like I've scared everyone. <laughs> I'm look, scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> scared. Don't be scared. So look, the biggest thing that you should take away from all of these conversations is, one, you should be more informed about how you make choices about security and privacy. Just like anything else that you do, you should be in charge of as much of that decision as you're able. So just like your physical security, you can't control every element, but you can control whether you walk down the street what at you night eat, by yourself. Right. You can control, yes, what you mm-hmm. eat because that'll affect how fast you can run. Or, you know, whatever. You can control certain pieces of that and you make choices every day right. consciously right. about that. So I just want you to do, as individuals, to do the same. Okay. And then realize the broader implications because if you're doing those things and you're making smart, conscious choices, you are helping your nation being right. smarter and more resilient and, world, and understand yeah. the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then also being smart on these issues and being vocal about what you do and don't want to happen on a world stage, on a national stage, right. will help legislators and policymakers like myself make their arguments for right. the things we need to protect ourselves. What are some recommended places people can go to just say stay, stay up to speed and if they want to advocate for certain legislation? So I feel like the best way to do that is kind of look at some of these news aggregator sites that do it by topic so that you can kind of focus yourself. So Politico has one that's focused on tech that you can get sent to your inbox every morning and you can understand what legislation is happening, what you know, what's going on on the Hill around technology, what the companies are doing, and it'll give you a a short snippet that you could either go to the full article or you can just get what you get from that and you can understand kind of the issues of the day. And that's a good place to start to kind of figure out how to guide your attentions if you want to comment on something, if you want to reach out to your senator or your congressperson to give comment, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, And be just an informed citizen. So Morning Consult also has one. Morning Consult. Uh, Morning Consult. And both Morning Consult and Politico have one focused on tech and cybersecurity. Axios has them. A number of these different, you know, news sites have targeted delivery of tech and cyber information. And I would also say follow. Oh, and follow me. (laughs) (laughs) She's on Twitter as Camille Stewart. No, well, yes, you can search me as Camille Stewart. My hashtag is Camille ESQ, Camille Esquire. And And of course, the Everyday Cyber. And the Everyday Cyber hashtag. hashtag. 
not only this month do I share tips, but I try to share news and tips and things that are relevant all of the time. Yeah. I'm always happy to answer questions, so engage me on Twitter. Good. Yeah, there are a number of different ways, and I can I can keep sharing those. Goodness. Well, thank you so much, Camille. This has been very helpful. My takeaway is change my password. Change your password. Be careful of the phishing Mm-hmm. messages yes. and verify sources and and I, I, I when I say this I really think about like people like my mom who are still so new to the internet and they don't have the eye to know the difference between what's real and what's not and yeah. I, my heart just goes out to like me too especially because populations. many of these social engineering attacks are very they're targeted genius. they're genius she, they know she goes to X bank X, and they'll yeah. send it looking like X bank so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean do your best yeah that's and, all you can do and educate an elder person yes. in your life and help them out yes when, you know so they're not clicking on random ads and yes please don't. sharing contact information with people um the ecosystem is vast but government's companies um, and the tech folks are all involved and have their agendas, but they're all involved in trying to make sure that our information is safe and secure. Yes. They're all advocating for you. They're all advocating for us in different ways. The other tip that I really appreciate um, is around this social engineering. You know, I would say that elections matter, but I think our sanity also matters. And so just be careful what you read. Yeah. Be careful what you read, know your source and just have some self-awareness. Like if you feel yourself getting angry about something like overly angry, just like check the source and be like, is this a reputable place? Um, And I do the, I am a stalker. I click on click on click. Yeah. Don't we all? I click on click on click to make sure. And I'm like, Oh I don't think this so. This doesn't look this legitimate. Don't look, this does not legitimate. Yeah. And I will close the screen real fast. Trust your gut. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that's a big thing and a good way to put it is just kind of, you can smell things that are fake people when you meet them, <laughs> as well as these sites, <laughs> right? You start to get a sense like, huh, I don't think that really makes sense. Maybe I should Google it. <laughs> Google it. And see if other news sources that I actually right. know are saying the are same saying the thing. Same thing. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So um, talk a little bit about your podcast, Hustle oh, yes. Over Entertainment. What's it about and how can people find your work? Hustle Over Entitlement is available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, anywhere you stream podcasts. And we focus on telling the stories of people who have taken interesting pivots in their careers. So you're blazing a new trail. You started some, you know, interesting niche thing in some discrete area or you were headed down this traditional or not traditional path and took a hard left because of either life circumstances or a new interest or you know life kind of guiding you and so we got to talk to some really cool people and I encourage you to really just listen to season one and two and play catch up absolutely absolutely Uh, you can listen to other episodes of what in the world at wera.fm you can go to my website whatintheworldpodcast.com I'm on twitter as WITWpod. Facebook, Instagram, all of it. I'm there. You can listen to episodes and please share with your friends. Camille, in true fashion on this show, because it was a lot of heavy stuff and I might be scared a little bit, you know, music is what we end with. And I ask every guest to tell me a song that keeps them in a good mood. What is your song that keeps you in a good mood when there are breaches everywhere? (laughs) Don't be scared. There are resources to help. But my song is Intentional by Travis Green. And it is a gospel song, and it talks about how God designs everything intentionally to work for your good. I love that song. Because when Ish gets crazy, yes, and when Ish gets crazy, I'm like, okay, this is on purpose. I mean, they're supposed to learn something in this moment. I'm supposed to rise up and act in this moment. Or something is happening for a reason that will benefit me in the end. So I always 
try to look at things with that lens and it's a great reminder that like there is a purpose even in this thing that sucks it's sucks. hard is you know whatever and i try to, to remember that at all times fair enough fair enough so ladies and gentlemen if you've ever been hacked know that there's, there's there's a reason somewhere there's something going on there and also one last pitch i would appreciate if our listeners would continue to support arlington independent media the local community radio station here in arlington where i use all of the supplies and resources to produce this show and uh, it's a vital part of this community so you can go to wera.fm click donate and all the proceeds will go to support uh, arlington independent media so thank you camille for being on the show and sharing all this wonderful information thank you all for listening thank you